1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: You are locked on the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.
1: It is Locked On NBA with ESPN Insider Kevin Pelton, the favorite of everybody who's ever listened to this show. KP is with us. We have a great time, as always. It's our quarterly visit with Kevin Pelton, off schedule a little bit and fired up. I'm David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, host of Locked On NBA, founder of the Locked On Podcast Network. Have you subscribed to your local favorite NBA team daily podcast? Hopefully, you have. There's a Locked On for your favorite NBA team. So, Make sure you subscribe to that. Thanks to everybody who's left us five stars. And you guys were awesome with David Thorpe. And the thank yous to David Thorpe. So much appreciate It's the best podcast community out there that you guys are willing to do that for our guests. I can't thank you enough for that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, you can do the same at... K. Pelton, if you'd like to. Today's show is brought to you by Bloom That Valentine's Day is right around the corner, and we've got a fabulous deal for you. I got the Bloom That flowers for my wife, and she was blown away, and she's not the easiest one to please. So for Valentine's Day, get out there. Avoid the hidden fees. Avoid the roses that turn into carnations and use Bloom That. It's super convenient. Go to BloomThat.com slash locked, and I'll get you a great deal. If you want to just do it now, you can find out. I'll tell you more about them uh, coming up on the program as well. And Indochino, the made-to-measure suits and shirts that I have become such a fan of, looking so much better than the uh, off-the-rack stuff that just doesn't quite fit. And I, and I think about it, I'm not even that unnaturally-sized a size guy. That's what makes Indochino so fabulous is the detailed measurements they go to, and they've got a super deal for you as well, Indochino. All premium Indochino suits for just 3 eighty nine if you use the promo code locked so Indochino.com dot com entering locked at checkout. Let's get to it. Kevin Pelton and I will talk trade deadlines. We'll talk about very, we just, it's me and Kevin. If you haven't ever done this before, we're just really good friends and we just chat and we kind of go everywhere. Uh, There were some minor technical issues. I'm in new Orleans. The tornadoes come through. The internet coverage is weird. I'm a little hollow. I tried to fix Kevin more than anything else to make sure he sounded best. So uh, I hope that's not too cumbersome for you. So uh, please support our sponsors, whether it's bloomthatcom slash locked or Indochino promo code locked in the meantime, Here's Kevin, and any thank yous to him are much, much appreciated. I just – I I missed you, Kevin. I'll be honest. The schedule was not very nice. It had an early Portland and a late Portland, and I missed you, so I had to call you.
0: Well, we're supposed to do this, what, quarterly? And, and I think we're off schedule at this point. We're well beyond the actual midpoint of the season. Um, yeah. Well, I
1: I don't I, – can we talk about this for a second – I, I kind of like the dead sprint post-All-Star break, but I think it ruins the trade deadline.
0: Because of the fact that there's no time for teams to practice with guys that they have acquired at the trade deadline? Right. I'm not, like, I'm not,
1: I'm not convinced, yeah, if you go get a guy with 23 games left, like, and you have any other type of other injury, then you never find out what works.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this gets to uh, the larger point of, of why trades aren't the panacea that they've sometimes become seen to be. Like any time you know a team is struggling or something goes wrong, the immediate response is, let's go to the trade machine and figure out what we can do to solve this. And to me, you know, I, I think of trades, it's like, a, like a, a surgeon using a scalpel. Like it's got to be very delicate and, and targeted and not like just you're cutting all over everywhere. That's not going to work.
1: And and so, how we all hear we're going to hear about Rashid Wallace for the next, you know, few weeks, right? That's the that's the ultimate trade that works so perfectly for Detroit. I mean, it was only you know probably fifteen years ago now. Uh, how often does a trade actually really work?
0: Very rarely. I mean, I think the the one step that maybe is misleading is the fact that like you know Wallace is the most prominent trade acquisition mid-season on a team that won the championship, well, of course, probably you're not going to be able to upgrade your roster that much if you're a team that wins the championship, because it's probably already going to be pretty good in the first place. I guess Channing Frye last year in Cleveland, although obviously not as prominent a member of the the rotation as she is. So that's kind of the first issue with it, but yeah, I mean, most of the time, if if you're a team that's looking to make a trade, it's because of the fact that you're you're imperfect and you're just not going to change your team that dramatically. The the Wallace trade was kind of a perfect storm of the first off, Wallace was a supremely underrated player at the time. I don't think we really realized how good he was until he got to Detroit. Uh, some people maybe did, but not the world at large. And then also they gave up almost nothing of note in that trade. So that's why it was an awesome trade at the time they made it. And that went on to work better than anyone could even have expected at that point.
1: Uh, the Pau Gasol, Kwame Browns, similar circumstances, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, again, gave up – Almost nothing in terms of their immediate rotation. Like the the big piece from Memphis ended up being Marcus o, who wasn't even in the NBA at that point. It was just his draft rights, and uh, yeah, yeah, a case where you just went from getting almost nothing from position to having one of the better players in the league at that position. So I mean, you know, maybe this year that's possible if Paul Millsap gets traded, but that that seems less likely with Atlanta playing play as well as they are.
1: So, when we're talking about these trades, is it if you're like Channing Fry is probably a better model than Rasheed Wallace. Like if you're trying to fix your seventh guy or your eighth guy, that's doable. But if you're trying to fix your third guy, it's unlikely.
0: Right? Yeah. I mean, the better the better the player you're trying to replace, the more difficult it's going to be. I mean, in some ways, then there's almost value in being a team where you're uh, well, not necessarily. T- heavy as uh as whatever lebron thought that the cavaliers were necessarily but you know if you've got like a good starting five and a weak bench it's easier to fill in the bench than it is to, to fill in the starting five
1: do you you're playing around with it and uh you have a piece out of the 10 trades on insider do any of them strike you as game-changing
0: well, the one of them that, that does strike me as game changing is I wrote about uh, Jimmy Butler to the, the Celtics, and uh, you know, I, he's a top ten player in the league at this point. So you know, pretty self evidently, if he changed hands, especially if most of the return that would be going to Chicago in such a trade would be you know about the next pick down the road as opposed to players, the current players, the Celtics are giving up. Then yeah, that would be a game changer. Why would
1: the Bulls do that?
0: they're not very good with Jimmy Butler, and <laughs> they don't seem to have a clear path towards being very good with Jimmy Butler. I don't know that I would necessarily do it, but uh, that would be the lie. Is there
1: any reason it's Jimmy Butler's fault that they're not very good with Jimmy Butler?
0: I don't think that Jimmy Butler – I mean, well, Jimmy Butler may have had some say in them signing Rajon Rondo and Dwayne Wade, but like it was evident to all of us on paper that this wasn't going to work, and I think in some ways it's maybe even – Uh, done better this this group of players than we expected last summer and yet they're still hanging around 500.
1: Uh, I always when do you what's your look I always wonder this so you have all-stars Indiana's playing better Paul George Jimmy Butler their teams are you know two three games over 500 over two seasons yet we anoint them as superstars and I always wonder like well but if they were superstars, wouldn't their team win more? What is the level that a superstar can really carry a team compared to where you look at it and say, okay, he's got no supporting cast?
0: I mean, I, I think that understanding has evolved all the time because you look around the league and a number of, you know, there's not a lot of teams that are winning with the one superstar and role players. Like Oklahoma City, I suppose, although, frankly, their differential is about even, they're really more or less the 500 team. Uh, basically, it's just Houston, which has found good enough role players and a good enough system around James Harden that if they are in contention with only one all-star caliber player.
1: Houston, everyone, analytics is so commonplace. Is Houston analytically far enough ahead of everybody else that they're
0: winning games because of it? Uh, I, I suppose the defense if define analytics, which is a, a broad term, what they're doing is due to their success shooting threes and the number of shoot threes they shoot and then just the general quality of their offensive shot chart. Uh, that wouldn't be possible without James Harden. So, you know, you can't just kind of conjure that out of thin air. But uh, what I would say is I don't know that Houston has a better understanding of the value of three than anyone else. Although maybe, you know, the Fact that they've had guys like Gordon and Anderson spotty up a step beyond the three-point line. Who knows how much that's actually driven by, you know, an analysis of how well that helps create gravity from those guys, as opposed to just kind of that's what they can do. And Mike Antonio told them to go ahead and do it. But uh, to come back to your original question. I think the answer is not necessarily that they have better analysis, but that they have better, they have more will to implement it.
1: Oh, interesting. All right. So, what's your thought on this? Anderson and Gordon playing the three-point line at 28 feet or 27 feet instead of 24 feet.
0: I think it makes a lot of sense. I for all the reasons have been elucidated. First off, you know it's a step farther for help defenders either to close out to them if they're trying to be in their regular help defensive position, or to help at the rim on James Harden or on a Clint Capella roll to the basket if they're playing as far off those guys as they would someone standing at the three point line. So there is an element of, you know, choose your poison there. Uh, I remember, you know, Kyle Corver doing that a lot against the Indiana Pacers in that first round series that the Hawks is an eight took the Pacers who were the one seed that year, the full seven games. And then it really, you know, it seemed like, Oh, okay, this might be the new NBA trend. And then really no one did it on a consistent basis until now. And uh, so I think it makes a lot of sense. The other interesting aspect of it is, I mean, if you look at shooting percentages, they don't drop off that much by distance. Now, maybe there's something magical about beyond 25 feet that it, uh, it becomes more difficult to shoot accurately there just inherently. But it seems to me that probably the reason it isn't that shots that, you know from that range have typically not been as accurate is just because guys don't practice from there. And if you start practicing from there, you'll probably be able to make from there And uh, then you'll at a similar rate that you could from right on the line. And then you've created some new problems for the defense.
1: I'm pretty fascinated by this conversation. I'm going to look at it from a defensive standpoint in a second, but let me tell you a little bit more about bloom that first off. They're just great. They sent them out to me as a sample. My wife was blown away. They arrived right on my wife's birthday. So it looked like I was a genius. And then she realized that that's that they were for a sponsorship, but I was really, really impressed. And when I found out more about bloom that, I found out why, and the reason is because the flowers are picked right before you order them, so they last usually about a week longer than anyone else. They're arranged by a designer, not on a factory line. All the flowers are out in San Francisco. It's super convenient. Bloom that, dot com slash locked, and it takes less than two minutes to order. Valentine's Day is just a few days away. I've got an exclusive order for you, so you don't screw that up. I'm really impressed by the product, but now I'm going to make it even better. You get a vase for free that's usually $15. You get the best price on gorgeous bouquet, just picked, hand design, I promise you. They're Instagram ready, frankly. They're that nice. And we're going to give you 15% off their lowest price. So go to bloomthat.com locked. Premium vase, 15% discount trust me you're going to be so excited that you did not screw up valentine's day when you use bloom that bloom that. dot com slash locked b-l-o-o-m-t-h-a-t dot com slash locked i don't know if this is because i spend time around one of the top three defenses in the nba all the time but i'm thinking about this really from a defensive standpoint and that extra f- step or two is a big deal like, the whole concept of so many of these defenses is to overshift knowing you can get back to the shooter. Well, if the shooter's two steps further away, you can't get back to the shooter.
0: Or if you do get back to the shooter, you know, maybe you're not able to close out un- under control. It's a much more aggressive closeout, which leaves you vulnerable to getting pump-faked into a shooting foul or into getting pump-faked and then, you know, reset the other is just say, if you're spotting up from 26 instead of 23, you can do the one dribble pull-up after the pump fake and still have it be a three as opposed to having to do the sidestep that like Steph Curry and Klay Thompson have perfected.
1: This is going to be commonplace within how long?
0: I don't know. I mean, sometimes it takes, like I said, I thought it might happen with quartering. Now, the fact that this is more – you know, this was kind of more random. This is more of a uh, – strategic tactic, like something the rockets are doing every game and their success with it is much more obvious even than the Pacers success was then, or the the Hawks success was then so i mean i can see it within a couple of years but it does raise the interesting question of you know we think that if the nba were to move the three point line back it might really hurt offense but would it actually kind of help in a way because of the fact that teams would start spotting up, spotty up deeper
1: i think, i think it's going to help the, i think it would help offense I think this. I think this. Tra- I think the key. There's two keys to this entire thing. One is that the percentages probably don't drop nearly at all once teams get used to it. And the second thing is it blows up entire defensive schemes because guys are already traveling so much distance on defense, but they've got figured it out that if you make it further. Uh, it's it's the same. It's why the corner three is only 7% of shots, right? You can get to that. It's closer, so right. you can get to it.
0: Right. And that's the interesting thing is, is three point attempts have exploded. Like corner threes have gone up a little, but it's really the above the break threes that have exploded because of the fact that it's a lot easier to generate more of those uh, points as an offense as opposed to just what the defense is going to allow. Um, Did we talk on an earlier podcast about the the Steve Shea and uh, Chris Baker analysis of three-point defense that came out in the preseason?
1: No, we just talked earlier when you didn't think three-point shots were going to go over 30%. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? I did. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. Was that from the earlier podcast? That was. We did not. I'm sorry. That That was an unfair cheap shot by a host. But there's so very few times that I'm right and you're not, that I had to point that out. So I just had to drop that into the podcast. Okay, what was this analysis that I don't recall?
0: So they were using Sportview data, I think it was from the 2014-15 season, not from last season because the the Sportview public data spout got turned off midway through last season. And basically what they asked, they've uh, they've used the SportView data to track a lot of things about kind of the shape of an offense. The, the gravity, these gravity-type concepts at the team level as opposed to at the individual level. And then so the question they asked uh, that they wrote about this year in October was, what are effective, def- or how do defenses respond to these? Like, you can tell the difference between teams that stay very tight on shooters or teams that aggressively help to the basket, you know, are very aggressive, concerned with cutting off, you know, attempts at the rim. And uh, it makes sense. You know, the, their analysis of this, like Portland, for example, is a team that we know really, really likes to protect the paint. I mean, they don't want to give up threes. Uh, they'd rather give up, you know, mid-range twos as a result of this. But that, that the way they play pick-and-roll defense, for example, they keep a defender around the rim, and they give up a lot of pull-up jumpers off the pick-and-roll, but they're not going to let you get all the way to the rim. So it, it matches up with what we see. And the fascinating thing about what they found is that the best defenses – generally either helped a lot or didn't help almost at all relative to the rest of the league. It was the teams that kind of tried to split it in the middle and like, okay, I'm going to help, but I'm also going to get back. Those were the teams that weren't as good defensively.
1: Well, we might've talked about this, that you've got to completely commit a little bit. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like I would share with you that at one point this year on the jazz, I just completely blew an analysis of our defense. Where the Jazz, I think, are number one in the league at not allowing a three. They're number one in the league at not allowing a corner three. And at one point, I kind of criticized them for the fact they were 29th in the league and allowing shots in the restricted area. Like, you know, the shots have to come up from somewhere if you're not forcing turnovers. (laughs) Right. And so yeah. I just blew it. Like, But it was funny because I was just running the numbers. I was like, why, why are the Jazz 29th in the league at, allowing shots in the restricted area? And just took that in its little capsule as an analysis piece and was like, that's not good. That's like they're going to have to fix that defensively. And they probably would like to get more teams in out of there, frankly. But it is a case where, hey, if you're not letting them shoot threes, you're not forcing turnovers, you're not fouling. And there are going to be a lot of shots that they have to go somewhere.
0: And I assume they also still were continuing to force a much lower percentage on those shots
1: than elsewhere. Yeah, because they have this guy that the Western Conference coaches (laughs) haven't figured out his value yet.
0: (laughs) I've I've heard of it.
1: Yeah, his name's Gobert. Evidently about 14 people in the West haven't entirely figured him out yet.
0: Well, that's not fair. We we can be pretty confident some of them voted for him, just not enough.
1: Yeah, and really that vote is never – uh, that vote has really never is never revealed, so we don't actually really know what that vote was. For all we know,
0: they all tied, right? If uh, well, what do you think would happen if the coaches' votes were revealed? I feel like that would that would suddenly you know it'd be you'd, you'd have a lot of players very specifically taking it out on coaches if they didn't make the All Star game, or even if they did and just. Didn't get a vote from that coach. Mike
1: Malone publicly told us who he voted for. I was very surprised and very impressed that he was willing to do
0: that. Yeah, I was, I was surprised by that as well when I saw that come through on Twitter.
1: I asked that question. I didn't think I was getting an answer when I asked that question. <laughs> but you might as well ask it, right?
0: Right. The worst they can say is no.
1: Uh, let's talk for a second on the, the massive numbers that players are putting up right now whether it's James Harden or Russell Westbrook or Minnie Allen Iverson in Boston and Isaiah Thomas. What is there anything where this is like the home run era and these have lost some value? What's your feeling on the massive numbers that are going on?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think anytime that you have so many guys doing something, uh, it, it becomes a little less valuable. Each of them doing it. It's the, uh, we, did, we might have talked about this on the podcast earlier this year too, because I was kind of obsessed with it for a while. But uh, it's the paradox of skill, where as the skill of everyone gets better, it's harder to stand out. So, you know, if if several individuals are doing these amazing things, then it's not as amazing as like one individual doing amazing things. Um, but you know, Danny Chow had a good piece on this last week on the Ringer. And the the first part of it is obviously just the pace of play being. Uh, accelerating so much in the last couple of seasons. Well, you know we're talking a lot here about per game stats, uh, the triple double in particular, and you know the point assist uh, combinations that Harden is throwing up. Like those are very directly tied to pace of play. The more the more possessions there are, the more chances you have to get rebounds and assists. So, you know that's that's a driving factor. But then the other the other interesting part of it is even if you look at the advanced stats. Uh, per possess- on a per possession basis, guys are carrying a heavier, heavier load more efficiently on offense than we've ever seen before. And I don't really have a good answer of why that's just happened in the last couple of years because I mean, people will obviously point to you know the rules changes, improved floor spacing, et cetera, et cetera. But these are the things that have been going on you know to some extent for a decade here. I guess you can you can throw in the fact that the league is more efficient now than almost ever before into that category as well. Why has it all of a sudden come together now? I don't have a good answer for that. Well,
1: I actually think this is backed a little bit of analytics. Like I just think there's a little bit of a realization that your best players are a lot better than your other guys, and so give them the ball.
0: Yeah, and the interesting thing is that there hasn't been a way to counter that defensively, because at the same time, you have to know the same thing on defense, which is that you know, if we can take away the opponent's best player, it's much more important, too. But
1: if you double-team, it gives up a three, and now with the rise of three-point shooting, that's more painful than if you're just giving up a mid-range two.
0: Right. And there's yeah. the change. I mean, that's, that's yeah, that's probably a big part of it. Uh, what is your thoughts on
1: what Isaiah Thomas is doing? I know this is your guy, so...
0: It, not only is this my guy, it's also the topic of Thursday's, call on ESPN Insider, so I... I, I, I haven't done the analysis yet, so I'm not sure entirely how much to answer.
1: What's your just watching it day-to-day? You watched him in college. I believe your numbers said he was going to be good, right?
0: Uh, his numbers were – his projections were fairly blase coming out of UW, partially because you know his first couple of years, he was splitting time on the ball. He was really more of a shooting guard at, at UW most of the time than he was a point guard. And uh, it was only after Abdul Gatti tore his ACL his junior year that he really full-time became a point guard and kind of everyone saw what he could do in that role. Uh, You know, I thought he would be an NBA player. I thought he'd be like a high-caliber reserve. Uh, I never, never, ever imagined that he might be doing what he's doing now
1: if the and what is and then go back to where we start what what is your take on what he what he's doing and is it Allen Iverson I mean I know you haven't done all your work on it yet so just give me the people can read your full take on the Thursday insider call but just your kind of what are you anticipating that your thoughts are as you head into this
0: I mean I think he's he's able to he's like we talked about been able to carry a high volume offensively more efficiently than probably any short player in NBA history
1: It's really awesome, by the way. But it also might be there's more space on the floor. It might be a product of everything we just talked about. There's more space on the floor than it's ever been. So your size, while size defensively probably matters more than ever, size offensively may not matter as much.
0: And, uh, you know, if you look at why Isaiah is able to do this this year, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with Al Horford. And, you know, you, you wanna, Isaiah Thomas, Al Horford, pick and pop, as the Celtics regularly do late in game, like you have to choose between giving up an open three to Al Horford, which he's not hitting quite at the same rate this year, but defenses are still reluctant to do, or Isaiah is going to have a, a clear pass made more or less to the basket.
1: By the way, we had the whole five out versus two two bigs discussion Boston is fully five out yeah just thought I'd point that out uh and, and unique in itself there was somebody though I realized that I think Atlanta becomes a difficult matchup for Boston in the playoffs
0: because of the fact that they have too much side. Because
1: I actually think their uh, I think actually because Millsap can play out and I actually think Dwight can probably play out better than some others. And then he's just enough of a force offense on the offensive glass that they expose Boston's weakness.
0: Yeah, their defensive rebounding is really, really bad. You want to talk about things that are relatively easy to upgrade at the trade deadline that would fall in that category. But can we talk quickly about Isaiah Thomas's defensive on off numbers?
1: You, you're going to defend your guy now, right? Of course I am. Uh,
0: did, you, did you read the uh, the thread I sent you on Twitter? Um, I did. I'm not
1: sure that I'm always smart enough to understand these things, but go for it, Kevin.
0: All right. Well, now I have to remember because I'm, I'm pretty sure I know who it was who tweeted this, but oh. I don't know 100%. I don't want to uh... – to give the wrong person credit here, so I have to scroll back through my feed a little bit here. Yeah, it was Andrew Johnson at at counting that, baskets on Twitter who posted about how You know, if you dig deep into what the Celtics are doing with Thomas on and off the court, you you noted that they're giving up. I think it's about nine points per hundred possessions more with him on the court.
1: Yes, they're about. Well, what actually happened to me was I watched Jabari Parker. Um, uh, exist on the defensive end, because I was going to say play defense, and that's probably not the right way to phrase it. And so then I did a quick little search and I, of guys that off the top of my head that I thought were in the starting five and major defensive liabilities. And so I found Jabari and Isaiah Thomas were both nine points less good uh, on the floor than off. Their teams were less good on the floor, off-floor defensively. I thought nine was a fairly enormous number uh and and then you had to defend your boy Isaiah Thomas. I noticed you didn't have any defense of Jabari. Of I'm wondering if there's well, a reason. I, I'm,
0: yeah, I mean I haven't looked as deeply into his. I had I and I and I just happened to to see Andrew tweeted this coincidentally the day before you you posted it or maybe even earlier in the day. Uh and what he noted is that if you dig into the on-off numbers, a big reason for this difference in the Celtics defensive rating is that they at that point were giving up 36% on threes with Isaiah on the court, 30% with him on the bench. Last year, uh, whether he was on or off, they gave up 33% either way. We know that, generally speaking, defenses don't have much control over what percentage their opponents shoot from three. So it stands to reason that an individual, one out of the five guys, would have even far less control over that than the five players as a whole.
1: Am I smart enough to understand this? I should have got that, right?
0: So basically, it's just it's just randomness. Like, some of the threes are going in. Three more threes are going in when Isaiah's on the court than there are when he's on the bench. But it's not actually something that reflects his ability, which is, you know, obviously the limitation of plus-minus as a whole, which is that – you don't know that just because there's a difference with one guy on the court as opposed to off the court, that it's actually because of something he's doing as opposed to all the other factors that go into, you know, what happens in a game of basketball. All
1: right. Before I take this in a different direction and take it to the coffee I have every morning with uh, a coach uh, with Kevin, let me tell you about Indochino. Uh, Indochino is made to measure suits rather than having this generic off-the-rack thing just draped all over you. Uh, I've used Indochino for uh, all sorts of my new clothes, and I love it. Uh, I have two shirts that are just fabulous. It's a really cool experience. You can visit the showroom, or you can go to Indochino.com. You pick your fabric, customized lapels, submit, and then you go through. You think you're done, and you're like, well, how do they know who I am? And then you go through this very detailed measurement everything your bicep your chest your all everything aspect and now you have your custom made to measure suit and they just fit so much better they make you look so much better than having something draped over the top of you and frankly unless you're different I I care how I look I Uh, I got to admit it. I'm a little vain on these things. So Indochino is the answer. Indochino.com. And then when you check out, use the promo code LOCKED. It will give you $389 for any Indochino premium suit. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure suit. And it's free shipping. Indochino.com. Promo code LOCKED. I'm I'm telling you, it's a really cool experience to be able to have access to what you see with those guys who just make so much gooples and gobbles of money able to do with their custom suit. This is your way of being able to look that good without paying that price. Indochino.com use the promo code locked. Okay, so so this builds a little bit. This builds a little bit to a coffee conversation. I go to coffee every morning with one of our coaches. And today's coffee conversation was how much do you coach to have the right thing happen on the floor rather than the right result. So in other words, If we're talking about the Jazz, if the Jazz are the number one team in the league at preventing corner threes and number one team preventing three-point shots, uh, or even if you think about it offensively, like the Jazz recently have taken, I think, something crazy, like 12% of their shots as corner threes. Like, do you just decide, wow, we're doing things right at that point, or does the ball have to go in the net for you to decide that what you're doing is correct? So what was the answer? It's interesting because, well, it was obviously a very long conversation um, over a second espresso. By the time we were done, uh, a little bit of it is he, he brought up a good point. Do I? He asked, "Do I have somebody on the team they're leaving?" Right. So, is there a point here where we can skew our numbers because we have a non-shooter who they're letting have a corner three every time? Right. Which that's was a pretty a good question. Pre- which was a really, you know, that's why you bring up things as a stats guy, and then the coach says that, and then you stumble around and nibble on your muffin and try to come up with a follow-up. Um, and I, at, at which point I said, do you really, our scheme, then then we it re- ventured into a conversation about whether schemes are specific enough to do that. So, um, you know, on a corner three, or and then are there particular parts of an offense where you know you're executing perfectly? And that was then he kind of said, hey, if we're getting shots at the rim, consistently night in and night out against different defenses, pretty universally they're trying to take away the rim.
0: Right. So that was I, I feel like I feel like coaches tend generally speaking to coach much more to process than the results. And that a lot of times what we discover using statistical analysis confirms that kind of coaching wisdom. Like, you know, we talked extensively last spring about the make-or-miss league, which has been a coaching cliche for decades, and it turns out to be completely accurate when you look at the numbers. Uh, I mean, I think the one thing I'd say is at some point you kind of – you probably need the results because of the fact that that's how you validate that something is a good process. But it might take a long time to get there, and I think people tend to underestimate how much randomness there is you know, in player performance and team performance and all these things. Like, it's it's very easy to underestimate that. Uh, I've been rereading that Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, and, like, the original, you know, genesis of Kahneman's research with the late Amos Tversky that eventually won Kahneman a Nobel Prize was they were trying to understand why even, like, people who were trained in statistics, like Kahneman himself, were using too small sample sizes in their studies and getting bad results, uh, it, bad, uh, unreplicable results. And it's because even though they knew the importance of sample size, they still didn't weigh it heavily enough.
1: That's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, all right. So you wrote a piece. I'm moving. Uh, I'm moving to another topic. I thought we could. To go offline there for quite some time, so I'm just changing our direction. Not that I didn't think that was interesting, but I thought you and I could have ended up in a lock, pelt, and rabbit hole that nobody else wanted to go down. <laughs> um, so I'm going big picture again. So if we go back like four years ago, I think it was, you ended up on the front, back cover of the New York Post, right?
0: <laughs> was it on the cover? I don't know. I don't remember that. Yeah, you,
1: you were like a New York Post, like Times Square, like people were like walking on you. Um, Because you said the Knicks were going to suck, and everyone thought that was outlandish, and the Knicks did suck. Had the Knicks had you on staff at that point, and you had told them, you're going to suck, and we probably should start rebuilding now, would all of their problems that they're embarking upon now be
0: fixed? (laughs) Well, first off, their problems go a lot bigger than than any one decision or uh, any like one general course of direction which is why it's probably going to say it like bringing in phil jackson is not going to really change things that dramatically for example uh, i would say number one the answer is no because of the fact that they would have surely talked themselves into believing my numbers were wrong because it's easy to come up with it, it, it's easy to come up with Reasons to support whatever conclusion you want to start with. The conclusion they wanted to start with wasn't that they were going to be a below five hundred team and miss the playoffs. But if they had started rebuilding now, like then, if they had traded Melo that season when he was about to hit free agency and got something of value for him, and not gone down this whole path with him, would they be in better position? Yeah, probably. I, I mean, you know, they'd be in better cap situation in all likelihood uh they would have a younger roster they might not have Sporzingis, who knows how that would go i mean that's the one thing that's worked out of what they've done but yeah probably
1: who today is fooling themselves who do you look at today and think to yourself wow you're fooling yourself you should be you should be heading in the
0: other direction mm-hmm. uh I mean, Miami and Dallas are both interesting cases because of the fact that those were two teams that we thought for sure were heading into rebuild mode and we're going to have high lottery picks this year. And then all of a sudden they started winning a bunch of games. And, you know, uh, in both cases, it seems very similar where it's a lot of it is about the coach's ability to get the most out of limited players, which is an admirable skill to have and very important in some situations, but very bad when you're trying to lose games and get high lottery picks. But the first team that came to mind when you asked me this question was actually Atlanta because of the fact that they've got that Paul Millsap decision we talked about earlier, uh, that I would assume probably going to keep him because of the fact that they're fifth in the East and, and not that far out of even second place. But if you look at their underlying metrics after, after the jazz uh, wallopped them pretty good last night in Atlanta, they are getting outscored on the season. There just is no way realistically that they should be able to compete with any of the top four teams in the East.
1: All right, I have a tendency locked on lockdown NBA to stay away from the jazz a little bit because I just, don't want people to think that I've become Bill Simmons talking about the Celtics within, you know, I don't know if anybody else did this. I used to play a little game when I listened to the BS report on the over under of how many minutes until the conversation veered into Celtics and then usually stayed there. So but I'm going to go to the Jazz here. They're third in net rating.
0: Are they within th- in the league? Yeah. Really? I didn't realize that. Yeah.
1: So how good are they? Right, Like, okay, so if, if, if I was the play-by-play announcer of any other team in the league and I saw a Utah Jazz team that was third in the league in net rating and then I did a little dig deep and realized that they were 18-4 and four in games where George Hill and Gordon Hayward both play and realized they were 21-7 and seven in games in which George Hill played,
0: I'd begin to think that they were really, really good. <laughs> You make some trivial arguments. I, I thought when you were on with Kevin Arnovitz a few weeks ago on the True Pod that uh, what you said about in a few weeks we'll all be talking about the Jazz based on their schedule made complete sense to me. And then lo and behold, it didn't quite take. But you know, it's one of those things where just because it doesn't happen on the schedule uh, that you were expecting it doesn't mean it's
1: not going to happen. All right. So go to the – so they their third in net rating.
0: What does that mean yeah. to you? <laughs> <laughs> they' probably performed as their best rate in the league this season, and does, i mean I, mean, but,
1: I know, okay so i like what's your view of what net rating really means or carries or does that i mean the the thing that's to some extent that the jazz uh have done this year is they are uh i think they're nine and fourteen now against above five hundred teams and they've only lost about four or five games against below five hundred teams i mean they're really tremendous uh-huh. against below five hundred teams.
0: I guess the interesting thing and maybe why I was so taken aback by that originally is because of the fact that their net rating is so different than their point differential, which puts them, let's see here, fifth in the league, I believe, behind both Cleveland and then substantially behind Houston. Houston's plus 5.8 and, and point differential, Utah plus
1: 4.5. I'm accurate. So, I, I don't have uh, – we're having enough – slight issues on our feed right now that I don't have a browser up because I'm just trying to make sure it's not an internet issue here in the hotel in New Orleans. So I don't have it up, but that's, have you checked? You've confirmed. I'm right. I think that they're third in the NBA in rating now. I'm
0: not believing you. It's just an, an odd. There would be a, uh, that, that great a discrepancy between those two numbers, which is are usually pretty closely correlated. But yeah, yeah, you're correct uh, about that. And I guess it speaks to the massive, uh, massive differential in pace between Houston and Utah, that Houston's Houston's net rating per 100 is lower than its point differential, Utah's is much larger. Uh, Between those two, I'm not really sure which is the better predictor going forward, because they're usually so closely correlated. I get that question sometimes, and I don't have a good answer for people.
1: So I guess I'll just put, I'll ask the question more simply, we've been asking the question for quite some time of how good Houston is, now I'll ask you the question, how good is Utah?
0: I mean, I think they're, they're awfully good. So if you're trying to figure out what a team is going to do going forward, I think the point differential is that net rating is the starting point. You've also got to consider what were our expectations of this team before the season. And in that case, we probably had Utah ahead of Houston, uh, certainly not ahead of, you know, the Clippers or, or Cleveland or even Boston and, and maybe Toronto in the East. But you had had, had them pretty high. Then the, the last part of it would naturally be injuries, and Utah has lost as much injury as almost anyone in the league, uh, even if not quite as much in the last month or so here. So uh, when you combine those three factors, I, I think there's, there is a pretty reasonable case that, you know, you know, the Clippers might be the third best team in the West going forward uh, when they get to full strength with Chris Paul, but that Utah is going to – win the third most games the rest of the season because Chris Paul is injured.
1: What is your take on where the Clippers are right now? I had the scout on my last podcast. He said they got
0: to trade Blake. I mean, I think if there was a good Blake Griffin deal out there, I would probably do it.
1: And what's your thought on that? Why?
0: Uh, Just because, you know, he's... I don't think I'm going to want to pay his next contract, given you know the the fact that he's probably going to be in the decline phase, his injury history, and the size of that contract, all very worrisome. Uh, and you know the other thing is that's probably your your best way to get multiple pieces for one player. Like they're, they're actually trying to get the opposite thing. If you believe they're in the Carmelo Anthony discussion where, you know, it'd be trading multiple pieces for one guy, which is funny for the Clippers because for years they've, you know, been so short in trying to get multiple, trying to add more pieces, not fewer. Um, but Blake, I think, gives you a chance. You know, we've seen that they can be competitive without him in the last couple of seasons by spreading the floor, going smaller. If you could do that and then also bring in some other guy, that's where I think it might make sense.
1: Your guesses. Uh, this we talk so much about it. It's so irrelevant. But your guesses on the eighth playoff team in the West, uh, in this quagmire of mediocrity.
0: I'm going to go with Denver. I mean, it's you know, from looking at the uh, the 538 in the ESPN BPI projections, it appears their schedule is more favorable in the second half of the season. Uh, they've got. You know they're in the eighth seed right now. They've got the best point differential of those teams. Uh, Minnesota is the only team that's even close to them. So, even though Dallas had been playing well before losing in Denver last night, uh, I would go with the Nuggets.
1: What would you do if you're Sacramento?
0: <sighs> Did not be Sacramento. <laughs> Uh, choose not to be Sacramento. I, I, I are you
1: I are you so saying wrong. you would choose, Are you making a larger statement there about their location, or just
0: um... no, no? That is not a statement about the, their location. That's a statement about the location of their franchise <laughs> in in basketball terms. Because uh, I, I don't think there's like an obvious path forward. Like you know, if they re-sign Boogie, extend Boogie, like that makes sense because Boogie is such an incredibly talented player. But I don't see how they get better with him. And if they trade him, I don't know that they're going to get good enough to really set them out, up to have like a great future. Like, would the, if, if they start their rebuilds, would you take the Kings over the Nuggets? No, obviously not. Would you take the Kings over the Timberwolves' young talent? No, almost certainly not. I mean, they, wait, wait, to wait, get wait, wait, lost. wait,
1: I got to jump in here. This is where I think this whole conversation is totally flawed because I think this is a simple. And I heard that Vlade said they're not trading him under any circumstance and maybe he's posturing. Who knows? But I feel like this is a really simple discussion. If I'm, I think most of this league is incredibly complicated with an, 12 different layers to it. And if we're sitting in a front office, I feel like all of us would get really quiet. Right? You've actually done it. You've, you've been in front office meetings. But I think most of us who are opinionated, if we were in a front office meeting and suddenly had to stand up in front of our 12 coworkers with all of our asses on the line, I think most of us would get quiet. I think the Sacramento situation gets down to one simple question. Do you believe that DeMarcus Cousins will become a different person than he has been for the first whatever seven years of his career in Sacramento?
0: Probably not. No.
1: Then it's a it's a no brainer. It actually doesn't even matter if they get anything for them.
0: Because I mean, that's a, that's a hard sell again in the real world of, we've got this new building. We're doing well financially, according to Kevin Arnavitz's great piece on Cousins and the Kings. And we're we're going to go back into the, the tank again with you know into the seller again with really. I mean, no one has any guarantees when they start a rebuilding process. But at least you can sort of tilt the odds in your favor by accumulating enough draft picks. If you're, you know, Philadelphia, for example. So, so go Denver. So
1: go this. get the best you can for him. But I actually think I mean I I understand what you're saying. I'm not trying to belittle it. But I actually think it's all irrelevant. Because frankly, yeah, you haven't won good. thirty. You haven't won thirty games with him. And if he's not going to change, then. W- it does. Then you might as you well. Fifty games without him. You've got a chance. You have no chance right now.
0: I, I do recall one of my favorite all-time quotes is uh, when Bob Witsett took over in Seattle as GM, ironically coming from the Kings. Uh, he his first move was to trade away Jack Sigma, who was an icon in Seattle, the last piece of the championship team, should be a Hall of Famer. But someone asked him like. Uh, you know, why are you tearing apart the team? And he goes, they went 30-52 and last year. What exactly is it you're objecting to be tearing apart here? Right. That's where
1: I am with Sacramento. And by the way, not only should Jack Sickman be a Hall of Famer, he should be an assistant, if not head coach in the NBA, with his track record working with bigs. Like, like he's one of the great big man coaches in all of NBA history, and he doesn't have a full-time gig. Like, you wonder why there's no bigs in this league. And now there are bigs now. Now there's numerous teams that should hire him. But I mean, he's worked with he he made Jerome James a viable player. He helped develop Yao Ming. I can't remember who the backup in Houston was at the time, but he wasn't good and Jack Sigma made him good. He made Nikolai Pekovic fabulous before he got hurt. He's working with Jonas Valančiūnas, who's probably had the biggest improvement of any big in the league right now in Toronto. Like how this guy is not a full-time assistant on a team is blows my mind, not to mention, you know, we there's plenty of uh racial problems with the hiring process in the NBA right now there's also a, a absolute stereotype against tall men as head coaches in the NBA. It is a weird one yes That was a really strange side that we just went down right there. <laughs> I, I didn't see it coming. I didn't either. Evidently very, very much bothers me um, and is accurate, maybe just because it's not talked about. All right. I have um, nothing else on my list and and was and we're at our time. So do you have anything that you feel that you have been massively neglected by not getting to discuss, Mr. Pelton?
0: (laughs) I mean, I'm on enough podcasts now that I don't feel like I have to discuss uh, everything every time I jump on here. But no, I I don't.
1: Um, Is it true that Amin is your least favorite person to work with? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, that's 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 true of Ethan and I and mean. that's that's not true of me. Okay, okay. all right,
1: yeah, you are. Um, you know, there once was a day where I interviewed you, just me. Now, hundreds, and he disappeared right at that moment. Maybe he was mad at me. You'll never know. That was Kevin Pelton. And by leaving early, I didn't get to tell Kevin to use Bloom That for Valentine's Day. That's right. Remember, Valentine's Day is just a few days away, so it's let's not screw it up, guys. Super convenient, less than two minutes, beautiful handcrafted flowers that aren't cut until you make the order. So you get 15% off the lowest prices, and the prices are down on Valentine's Day, plus the Premium designer vase that usually costs about $15, or actually just $15. Should go to bloomthat.com slash locked. That's bloom, B-L-O-O-M, that, T-H-A-T, slash locked to get that. Also, Kevin should be wearing Indochino made-to-measure suits and shirts when he becomes a rock star on TV on ESPN. Go to Indochino.com slash locked and get the discount on that. Brought to you by Bloom That and Indochino. This has been Locked on NBA. Thanks to Kevin Pelton, and thanks for sticking with some of the technical issues.